The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Peppy. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is WVU Sports Podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right. Hey, guys, before we get started, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Voice of Motown Podcast. We're trying to get those numbers up, so we would appreciate your support. Tonight, we're discussing Shane Lyons' interview with Hoppy Kirchikul, um, Jalen Anderson's performance. What grade would you give Neil Brown for his performance this past season? And then we'll finish it out with WVU's basketball performance out on the West Coast. Uh, but let's start with the Oklahoma State game. In the last game of the season, WVU gets their fifth win of the season over Oklahoma State. It was a rainy day that saw a lot of drops, a lot of defense, and a lot of punts. This game had 15 punts total, but it all added up to a nice win for the Mountaineers. They only threw the ball for 77 yards, but their 250 rushing yards and tough defense got the job done. Um, and some cool storylines. Nico saw his first action since the Towson game. And Jalen Anderson had a monster day with 155 rushing yards. So a big breakout performance for him. So what are your overall thoughts on the game? Yeah, it was a game that I think going into, honestly, I, I wasn't super enthusiastic going into because it was kind of a meaningless game. Um, but it was great to see, you know, some of the young guys come in, come out and break out. Um, you know, you mentioned Jalen Anderson. I thought Garrett Green looked good up until his injury. You know, it was great to see what Nico could potentially be um, over time. And then, um, of course, you know, it was good to see some life out of the defense when it mattered. Um, I know we were going up against a backup quarterback, but, you know, the defense actually wasn't a complete sieve. So, um, you know, it was something to, to be happy about um, in a season where it doesn't seem like there's a ton to be happy about. <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you. I, I mean, I was happy they picked up the victory. Green had 48 passing yards and a pick, but he had 47 rushing yards, including a nice 36-yard touchdown. Um, unfortunately, he took a what looked like to be a targeting shot right to the helmet, and um, but it wasn't called targeting. We we can go on and on about that, but there's no point. We don't. We still don't know what targeting is. But um, yeah, we don't mess around with concussions anymore. So he was done. And Nico got to see his first action since Townsend. So um, his overall stats, not great on paper. He, he was two for nine, 29 passing yards, but 32 rushing yards on a very rainy day. Um, so what this highlighted to me was just how important it is to have a dual threat quarterback again. I mean, the weather conditions made it difficult to throw the ball Saturday. We saw that with Oklahoma State. They had a ton of drops, couldn't really get anything going. And, um, you know, Garrett and Nico just found ways to extend drives using their feet. And that's something WVU hasn't had since Skylar Howard. And I don't know, just looking towards next year, since this was the last game, I'm kind of looking forward to having a quarterback who can run from time to time next season. I mean, more than likely, unless we go through the portal, it looks like we're going to have a quarterback who has legs again. Yeah, I, I like that, too, because it gives you a little bit more options on offense, um, gives you some more flexibility. 
um, and gives you a different wrinkle that teams have to prepare for. And, you know, I think you're seeing it even more um, in the NFL as well, too, where quarterbacks who are statues really aren't, you know, what teams are looking for anymore. And I think that's because, you know, the value of having someone that not only can do designed runs um, because the read option um, RPO type of offense is becoming more popular, but also someone who can get outside the pocket and make plays, force the defensive backs to adjust for those situations, which opens guys up in the secondary. So, um, you know, we've seen um, the, you know, Garrett green kind of open up the offense in ways that JT Daniels couldn't whenever um, he stepped in over the past couple games. So um, I, I'm definitely looking forward to the same. I mean, um, you know, obviously if we got some, you know, big time, quarterback um who was a pocket passer i could live with it if we had the offense that could support it um you know and i still think that maybe jt daniels could be that guy but i think right now with the personnel that we have with the coaches that we've had uh, have currently um i think a more dual threat guy or a mobile guy if you will um is a better fit for what we want to try to do I think you nailed it. In today's football, even in the pros, you have to be exceptional to be a pocket passer now. Like you have to have one of the best arms in the whole world. I mean, because if you look in the NFL and look at all the good starting quarterbacks, there's very few that don't have legs. Um, and, And so that's just the way college football is going. And so if you can get a guy who's got an arm, got legs, he can be above average talent wise and still be very good. You know, he doesn't have to be exceptional. So uh, I think you nailed it there. Uh, We can't move on unless we talk about Jalen Anderson. He was a monster. 15 carries, 155 yards, and two touchdowns. That's 10 yards a carry. And you and me, anyone who listens to this podcast regularly, we've been calling for Jalen for several weeks now. And they finally gave him a fair opportunity. And um, the dude made the most of it. Two long touchdowns of 54 and 57 yards on back-to-back possessions. And that's really what won the game for the Mountaineers, on offense at least. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing this backfield return next season because it's absolutely loaded. Hopefully, all four big names return. But, um, you know, even if we lose one, I still feel pretty good because we got plenty of guys who can carry the load and they can, you know, if someone's having an off day, you can just go to the hot hand. Like it seems like we've been doing these last few weeks. Yeah. And I feel like what Jalen Anderson did in that game and what he did last week as well is kind of what we all thought that Tony Mathis would do coming into this season, you know, find the hole, one cut, get up field, break arm tackles. That's what we saw Tony do last year. And Jalen came in there and he is a bigger back. He's not as shifty or quick as Jalen or uh, Justin Johnson, but he is, he does have that top end speed to pull away when he needs to. And he was a guy, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I'm patting myself on the back that uh, I actually called to be the starter coming into this season because I thought that, you know, physically and skill wise, he was the most talented back that we had in that recruiting class from uh, two years ago. Um, obviously he's had some issues with weight and conditioning and coming on campus late whenever he came on last year, but, you know, I think his skill set is really, really intriguing. Um, you know, I know he didn't do it a lot, but he also caught, I think a pass and he looked good doing that too, getting out in space. Um, in high school, he was, I think he had like 700 yards received as well, something really high. He had a tremendous high school career. Um, and you know, I think he has the ability to do everything and he could be a great compliment to Justin Johnson. Um, he could be a great compliment to, um, CJ Donaldson and, you know, he could even, 
you know, help out with Tony Mathis's load if he's going to, you know, if he's going to stick around as well. But, you know, even if we only keep two of the backs um, out of the four that we have, I still think that the top two guys that we've had are are really good and are going to be more than able and um, uh, willing to carry the load that we need them to. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, you know, out of our four big backs, really the the only one who I think had a disappointing year, unfortunately, was Tony Mathis. And I'm sure that wrist injury played a big role in it because he got that, I think, in the Virginia Tech game, which was real early in the year. And it seemed mm-hmm. to just affect his play from then on out. I think he had one good game after that. I want to say Baylor. Um, but for the most part, we, you know, I'm sure most people expected more from him and I'm sure Tony would say the same thing. So hopefully he comes back healthy next year. And, um, yeah, Justin Johnson, Jalen Anderson are, uh, I, I mean, the, their errors just pointing up if you ask me and, um, who knows, maybe CJ Donaldson will still be on the roster. We're all hoping because of course he looked like a stud. Um, so it's just really looking good for the backfield next year. Uh, I did about- see uh, uh, real quick on CJ Donaldson. Um, I did see someone post a screenshot of uh, I think it was an Instagram story that he posted of it was and uh, it was a T-shirt that he made for to make NIL money recently, and it has CJ Donaldson's picture on it and the state of West Virginia. So hopefully that's a good sign. I mean, would you be making T-shirts for someplace that you're leaving? Um, I hope not. Or unless he's just trying to get some money before he leaves, but um, I'm really leaning towards the former. Um, you know, he he wants to stick around and he understands what a good situation he has here. Well, that's encouraging. I, I didn't see that. So that definitely is encouraging. And I'm still hopeful. Um, I know a lot of people basically wrote him off after a lot of his stuff got pulled off of his social media, but it went right back up. And that made me hopeful that, um, you know, maybe he was thinking about it, but was still on the fence, which I'm sure a lot of players are. And we'll get into all that here in a little bit um, because of how what the situation is at WVU right now. But um, just to round this off, defense, you know, Ruffin, Andrew Lamp, I thought played pretty well overall. Ruffin, of course, had a huge bonehead play at one point in that game. But um, his, yeah, that's a, that's definitely going to make some highlights. But, um, you know, his play towards the end is really what won the game for us on that last drive. Um, and defense overall, they forced seven punts, three turnovers on downs. Um, and, of course, Dante Sills capped off his great WVU career by recovering a fumble. Um, so shout out to him for just, you know, having a great career. He officially finishes number four as the all-time sack leader at WVU. He had 23 and a half to finish his career. And uh, he'll also finish first in tackles for a loss, games played at WVU. And that's a guy the defense will really miss next year. And uh, hopefully an NFL team gives him a fair shot at succeeding at the pro level. The only thing I can say, um, I I just wish we were better when he was here because I, I... Obviously, you know, he'll be remembered and loved by WVU fans forever. But um, I just wish his name would be up there with like a Julian Miller and guys that we remember when we had amazing records. I feel like Mm -hmm. the fact that the team suffered a little bit while he was here, um, I I don't want to say it might hurt his legacy, but his name might not be brought up as often as it should be 20 years from now. Yeah, that's a really great point. I mean... 
you know, even where looking at his stats in the history books, I mean, it's it's going to be tough to kind of think about how how important it was because, like you said, you know, our record wasn't that good when he really was one of the most important, if not the most important player on our defense. It's just that, you know, through a circumstance of situations where you either have a really bad offense for a few years or you have a secondary that can't stop anyone, um, you know, and, and I do think his numbers could have probably been better too especially this year, if we employed a little bit of a different defensive philosophy. I mean, we played conservative so much um, towards the beginning and middle of the year where we were just dropping so many guys back and letting Dante and Jefferson and everyone else get double teamed um, because we were only sending three or four. How, how would his numbers have increased even more if we were blitzing an extra two or three guys? I mean, we got to the quarterback, what, four or five times against Oklahoma State um, because we were blitzing linebackers. And that helps freeze up, free up, freeze up defense alignment as well. So um, the one thing I am disappointed on is that uh, he didn't catch his dad in all time sacks. I think he finished three short, um, you know, and I like to think that if we would have been a little bit, maybe more aggressive this year, he might've actually tied that. And that would have been an even better end to the story. Yeah. 100%. And, you know, hardcore fans like us, and I'm sure most of you listening will always remember him because, you know, no matter the record, we watched pretty much every snap he played and, you know, he impressed pretty much the entire time he was here. So um, I don't know, just for him, I, I just wish the teams maybe had more memorable seasons, but um, kind of to cap off the Oklahoma state game, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Ollie straw. He makes a clutch punt late in that game. There was a bad snap. It got muffed. I don't know what happened, but he stayed calm. He made a decent punt. And honestly, without that WVU, more than likely loses that game if you give Oklahoma State just 20 yards to work with or even scores off that play. And, um, you know, we'd be losing our minds right now if we don't if we lost that game in that fashion. So shout out to Ollie Straw, not only for that play, but just for having a solid season from start to finish. Yeah, he, he was great. It, it's, you know, it, a punter is something that you don't really notice or take or take for granted whenever you have a good one, but whenever you don't have a good one, it's something that you complain about every day. And I feel like, you know, with WVU and Ollie Straw, I haven't had to have, make too many complaints about him. I mean, he has been rock solid from day one. He's a true freshman. Um, so we have a long time with him still. Um, I'm really hoping that punters don't become a thing in the transfer portal um, because it would be great to keep him around. Um, but, you know, in terms of the end of the game, you mentioned, you know, how things could have been different. And this was a game that, you know, I'm happy that we won as a WVU fan, but this was a game that didn't feel like, you know, from a coaching perspective that we were really kind of in position to guarantee ourselves a win in the situation that we were in. Um, it felt like we missed a lot of opportunities. We gave them too many opportunities and Oklahoma state did the same. Um, you know, they were playing a lot of backups, especially, you know, a true freshman quarterback for most of the game um, while WVU was as well. But, um, you know, this is a Oklahoma state team that, you know, just is kind of having a down year and um, you know, they're down year, they're finishing seven and five, which is a lot better than what WVU is at. But um, you know, I'm happy that WVU could come out for with a win, but it felt like a game that WVU kind of was in more control of for the most part in the game as they should have been because we were more experienced out there. Um, than what Oklahoma State did, and yet we still only won by five points. Yeah, and that's just classic Neil Brown games. I don't know why, but we can just never 
blow out a team. Even when it seems like we, we've dominated a majority of it, it, it just always seems to come down to those last few minutes. And this one was no different. So um, let's get on to the big topic. Everybody heard about it by now. But Shane Lyons joined Poppy Kirchival for an interview on Metro News. And boy, oh boy. It was a fun listen, I thought at least. Um, he was very transparent about how his time in Morgantown came to an end. He talked about Country Roads Trust, Neil Brown, conversations he had with Gordon Gee, just so much. So um, tell us how we got to this point, Brandon. Yeah. So um, as many of you have seen and have been probably trying to follow along everything that has happened in about the last month or so, um, it has been a very busy, atypical season for WVU. Um, so, you know, to kind of summarize everything, put everything in the one podcast that uh, you guys can reference later on, um, I developed a timeline. So um, to start off, WVU started out the season three three and six with blowout losses to Texas, Texas Tech, and Iowa State, who did not have a win at the time. Um, c- coming into the next game against Oklahoma, WVU actually had a Board of Governors meeting, which was held on November 11th, which was the Friday before the Oklahoma game. Um on November 12th, WVU beats Oklahoma at home. Um, and on November 14th, Shane Lyons is forced out as athletic director, which was most likely um, because of that meeting that happened on the 11th. Um, so, you know, you can kind of look back to those losses to Texas, Texas Tech and Iowa State as being, you know, potentially drivers for Shane Lyons being forced out. After Shane Lyons was forced out, Rob Alsop was named interim athletic director um, e. Gordon Gee comments that a recruiting firm has been retained for the athletic director search, and it would take three to four weeks. Uh, the top candidates at the time were considered to be Rob Mullins, the Oregon athletic director, Patrick Chun, Washington State athletic director, and Andrew Locke, former WVU athletic director. Fast forward almost two weeks, and November 27th, it is announced by 20, 24-7 Sports and Hoppy Kirchival of um, Metro News that Rob Mullins would not be taking the AD spot. Um, the preference w- at the time was to hire an AD that is a current, currently sitting at a P- Power 5 school in an athletic director role. However, 24-7 and Hoppy noted that the AD will now likely come from a G5 school. Following that announcement on the 27th is when Shane Lyons gave the interview with West Virginia Metro News and Hoppy Kirchival on the 28th. And it really shined a lot of light on what has happened. So um, kind of wanted to summarize where we are now. So WVU is searching for a new athletic director. As we noted, um, Rob Mullins and a second candidate are reportedly out of the mix. Um, the second candidate that is reportedly out of the mix is probably Andrew Luck, but it's probably not going to be Patrick Chun either as he is not, he, he is currently an AD at a power five school. Um, also, since the focus is being on someone with power five at, at a power five school in an athletic director role, this also likely eliminates Matt Borland, the president and CEO of LSU's Tiger Athletic Fund, Kevin Miller, senior associate athletic director at Georgia, and Alex Hammond, co- coaching and personnel agent at Athletes First and former associate AD at WVU. Um, and the new athletic director will be responsible for the future of Neil Brown. But the question still remains about when the new athletic director will be hired and what led shit to Shane Lyons dismissal. And this is where this talk line interview with Shane Lyons comes in. And rather than provide clarity, 
it may have muddled muddied the water even more. Yeah, I I mean, first of all, I, I want to give Shane Lyons some credit for being so open in the interview. I'm I'm sure a lot of it had to do with trying to save face. But I appreciate the fact that he didn't give a bunch of cookie cutter answers and, and just, you know, made it real boring and a waste of all of our times listening to it. But, um, yeah. um, you know, Shane Lyons thinks he's a scapegoat. He even used that word scapegoat. And I kind of see what he's saying. The decision to extend Neil Brown has to get approved by Gordon Gee and a lot of other higher ups like the directors of the board etc cetera, etc cetera. so it wasn't just 100 his decision but shane lyons even admitted it, it was his idea to extend neil brown it, it was his idea to raise his buyout to five million dollars in return for neil brown's agent to negotiate that his contract to be fully guaranteed that was all shane lyons doing that before he brought it to everyone and um you know that's just not a good deal for west virginia i mean that's not a tiny gamble that he was taking, which all athletic directors have to do. That is a huge gamble, high risk. And, and I mean, I guess you could say high reward, but I'm not even sure about that for a head coach who was currently 11 and 11 at the time. And sure, it might have seemed like it was trending in the right direction. But um, to make a deal like that, it's got to kind of look like a slam dunk. Shane needs to take a little more responsibility, if you're asking me. For not only making that decision, but also pitching it that, you know, that decision to the president and the board. Sure, they all have some blame there, but the majority belongs to Shane. So I, I do agree that Shane kind of, you know, was used as a scapegoat so that the others would look better. But at the same time, it was justified for him to be fired over this monumental bad decision. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think the contract is definitely bad in hindsight. And you know, you would really have to, you know, get a great, great season out of Neil Brown to, to justify that at the value. I mean, $4 million a year isn't that much when you compare it to some of the great coaches who are getting hired now. So if Neil Brown turns out to be great, then that's a great deal. But if he turns out to be average or above average, then, you know, you're probably playing market rate. So, you know, even if you think that Neil Brown is just a good coach, you know, paying him that much, over the course of, you know, was it four or five, six years, um, really doesn't make sense and not giving yourself the wiggle room to upgrade potentially in case, you know, he falls behind the game or his recruiting stalls out or any certain number of things could potentially happen. You're just putting the school, the board of governors, the athletic department, the donors, and everyone who's connected to the program, you're putting them in a bad situation. And that's when people start coming out and complaining about other things. And that's kind of what happened here. Um, you know, Shane Lyons also alluded to, um, you know, the transfer portal and the relationship with the country roads trust as reasons for his dismissal as well. Um, on the transfer portal, you know, he, he noted it's the coach's responsibility, which for the most part it is, but, you know, for the CRT relationship that ties into with the donors and everything like that, uh, the donors are going to funnel money to our players with NIL and Lyons admitted that he didn't want to build that bridge because he fears title nine implications, which would, you know, hamper money, federal grant money from the department of education to WVU if they weren't title nine compliant, um, which could be a fair argument, but you know, there's every other, uh, most major programs in the country are forming those alliances. So I, I think it kind of, you know, Shane Lyons, in my opinion, my read of 
the contract and the CRT relationship piece, it just kind of shows more of a old school, um, good old boys relationship style of leadership rather than trying to keep up with the times. And now isn't the time to be, you know, trying to tiptoe or trying to stay all behind the line in order to keep everyone happy. Yeah. And I think part of it is, you know, the NCAA just was not real transparent about how all of this works out of the gate. And so I think a lot of ADs are trying to play catch up and Shane was definitely one of those guys um, because he was, he was trying to make sure he was compliant, but at the same time, you know, people are in his other ear telling him he needs to do more and he doesn't know which side to go. So, um, I, I mean, I get it. I, I was telling Brandon before we hit record on this that, you know, before every segment Hoppy had with Shane, I would kind of be on Shane's side, understanding where he's coming from. But by the end of it, he talked himself out of it to the point where I was like, oh, screw this guy. Now he lost me again because, it, I mean, again, I give him credit for being so transparent. But at the same time, it felt like he just kept trying to throw the blame off himself. Um, like for example, the country road trust wanted him to get coaches more involved and his words were, and now we are. So he kind of told on himself that, you know, for a while there, he, he wasn't even using the coaches to promote it. He's, he did it, you know, a little late for their liking. And, um, you know, he probably could have got away with all of this and trying to catch up and get with the times, which is understandable if Neil would have just been a little more successful. I mean, it all just goes back to he made that terrible deal. He was making other people angry, and it all added up to someone had to go, and it just happened to be him. So, I mean, it it, kind of worked out for him. He got a job at Alabama again. Um, Like I said, I I kind of get where he's coming from and some of his arguments, but at the same time, um, you know, I I still think his firing was, was justified. Yeah. And you also have to think too, you know, the, the donors, the people who are funding the athletic director department in a lot of ways are just fans like us, except they have piles of money sitting around. And when you're not winning, when you're losing games, you know, it's going to increase focus on either the coach or yourself. And if you're the one kind of putting yourself in between, which is a good trait to have, you know, you should be the person who's taking a bullet for the guy that you hired but it can have those consequences. And unfortunately it seemed like Shane Lyons was um, attached to Neil Brown to a fault. I mean, he noted that he views this year 2022 as year two for Neil Brown, because the state of the football program after Dana left was in shambles in the COVID year didn't help matters, which, you know, I think we can look at other teams who made hires during the same time, in particular, Kansas state, who's a similar size school, um, in terms of money and fan base and location and all those sorts of things and where they're at now and where we're at now. They hired their coach at the, exactly the same time. And where are they now? They're in the Big 12 championship game. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, you know, uh, out of all the stuff he said, the stuff that annoyed me the most is how he he just kept creating more excuses for Neil Brown um, saying it's year two. I don't, I don't buy that at all. It's, it's not year two for Neil Brown. Um, if you want to give some excuses, the classic ones, the cupboards bare and then COVID. I, I mean, I guess that gives you a little wiggle room, but by year four, no, I like, I'm not buying that as that's why you're failing at this point. Um, 
you know, he said Neil Brown checks all the boxes. Or his exact words, I believe, was he checks every box. Listen, Neil Brown might check a lot of boxes behind closed doors. We know that he has good relationships with a lot of people. He's personable. He brings old players back. And yeah, that's all great. But he doesn't win. So you can't sit there and say he checks every box. He even said, except the biggest one, winning. Well, you can't just gloss over that. You just said that's the biggest box. And you want fans to pay for season tickets. You want fans to buy merch and to drive hours away and come to these games. Winning's a big part of that, man. We don't want to give up you know, time with our family, give up our money to watch a bad product, which we have basically seen for four years. The only good season Neil Brown has was the COVID year, which everyone acts like, oh, poor Neil Brown. That COVID year helped him a lot because he... He only had to play one out-of-conference team, which was an FCS school, and he didn't have to play Oklahoma. I mean, if he played a full schedule, who knows? He might not have one single winning season in his entire tenure here. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I know it's popular to just crap on Neil Brown, and that's easy to do. But for him to say it's year two and to create all these excuses for him, that really annoyed me. Like I said, there was times he had me going, but then he would always just get to the point where I, w- I was hating on Shane Lyons again. And that, w- that was a big part where I, I just don't want to hear that anymore. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know. Like, I've heard a lot of talk through the Get Grapevine that he has an arrogant personality and that has turned off donors, has turned off people who want to work more closely with the program. Um, we've heard that from probably more people than you know, we care to. Um and you can definitely see that from the, the interview. You know, he he has a hard time admitting when he's wrong and he has a hard time admitting his responsibility. And that definitely had to factor into his firing. Um, and at the same time, you know, that that interview that he gave really kind of puts us in a peculiar situation at this time, too, because as we have noted numerous times already, Neil Brown is still our head coach and time is running out. Um, there are currently five power five job openings at Auburn or not Auburn anymore, um, Stanford, Georgia Tech, Colorado, and Cincinnati, who's not technically a Power 5 school yet, but they will be soon. Um, there have been multiple hires over the past few weeks, or over the past week. Luke Fickle got hired at Wisconsin. Matt Rule got hired at Nebraska. Kenny Dillingham, Oregon's offensive coordinator, was hired at Arizona State. And Hugh Freeze, which was one of the targets that was noted to be connected to WVU, has been hired at Auburn. Um, and there's even more crucial deadlines coming up for, you know, making these changes at WVU. The NCAA transfer portal opens up on December 5th and remains open for 45 days until January 18th. There's also a spring period from May 1st to May 15th. We've already had two players enter the portal, uh, Mumu Benwanhad and Corbin Page um, and Charles Woods as well. Um, and then Bryce Ford Wheaton and same J- James have, release Twitter messages that seem to hint towards that they won't come back despite having remaining eligibility. And if things aren't on a rapid enough timeline, there is another important deadline coming up soon. And that is the early signing day for football recruits. So that is December 21st through December 23rd. And then the regular signing period starts February 1st through April 1st, 2023. So what does this all mean? WVU needs to either decide on Neil Brown or hire a a new head coach before or sometime between December 5th and December 21st, or else if you make a hire after that date or too close to that December 21st date, 
you're going to have a hard time building a competitive team for next year, regardless of who your coach is. On top of that, we've already struck out on our top two of our three targets for our athletic director. So that three to four week timeline, which we are halfway through already, is rapidly coming to a close. And we don't necessarily know what's going to happen with that because there is very little speculation out there. And on top of that, there's a fear of delayed hiring or delay announcement with Neil Brown could create a mass exodus of current players to the portal, a loss of a top 30 nationally nationally ranked recruiting class, and not giving the current head coach or a new head coach enough time to replace departing players in order to field a competitive team for 2023. So... where would you say the panic o meter is right now for our current situation? <laughs> so what's the scale I'm going off of here? One to ten. Ten being the alarm <laughs> bells are siren firing, the jets are deployed, you know. <laughs> so where we sit right now today, I would put it at a seven, only because we do still have some time. It's not much, but we have time. So I would put it at a seven, but in a week. Maybe two weeks from now, that that number might go way up or hopefully it goes way down. But um, yeah, I mean, you make a good point. Regardless about how we feel about Shane Lyons being fired, this is a total mess by the higher ups at WVU. Being in limbo is definitely the worst scenario right now. Either make a decision on Neil Brown or announce that he's staying. I, I get you want to you know, let the AD make that decision, but you know, the staff needs to know more importantly, the players need to know Um, who knows how many recruits and current players they could possibly lose because of this uncertainty. Um, WVU, they're going to lose players no matter what to the portal. I mean, we've kind of all made peace with that, but I feel like the damage is going to be a lot worse when these guys don't know who their head coach is going to be next year. I mean, they might want to stay and they just, but if you have another option that seems tempting, you might just pick that option just because people like to know like what's in ahead of them. You know, a lot of, if someone's 50, 50 right now, you're kind of pushing them out the door because, and I wouldn't even blame them. You know, people like to know what their future looks like. And right now it just looks like a total mess here at WVU. Oh, for sure. And, you know, what, a lot of you know recruiting services have talked to current WVU recruits to ask them about the situation, and they have said, you know, we're just watching to see what happens, and that's basically the answer they're giving. I mean, there's been a few who have come out and reaffirmed their commitment, but there are more people out there saying that they don't know yet compared to the people who are saying that they're 100% committed. Um, and, you know, you, you really can't blame them for that. I mean – you want to know, like you said, who you're playing for is the program you're going to go to stable. And, you know, if Neil Brown is on the hot seat, which he is, and there's, you know, he's on the clock next year and we do bring him back, you know, is that going to drive some players away too? Um, Knowing that, Hey, if I come to this program and this coach who hasn't performed in four years has to reach eight wins, nine wins, whatever the goal is for next year. Is that a guy I want to play with? Is that, you know, do I want to go there for a year? And then, Another coach is brought in who I don't know, who I don't have a relationship with, who I don't know if he believes in me. Um, do I want to play for him? And that goes for the, some of the current players who are on the team now. I mean, it is CJ Donaldson and Justin Johnson and Jalen Anderson um, looking at a new coach and saying, you know, I know I'm a really good player, but there's three running backs 
in this room. There's four running backs in this room. Am I going to, are they easy? He's just going to give the ball to one guy. Is it just going to be two guys? Are we still going to split the ball four ways? Like Neil has, what's my situation going to be? And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, while these guys are teammates and they get along, I'm sure that this isn't something they're bouncing off of each other that they're coordinating about. I'm sure not all four of them aren't in a group chat and say, okay, we're going to draw straws. Two of us stay, two of us leave. Um, You know, I don't think it's anything like that. It's happening, you know, kind of in a, in a vacuum where they're all making their own decisions. So while we have a great backfield, and this is just an example of one position group, um, but, you know, right now we have an abundance at running back. We have a pretty solid offensive line. We have a really good defensive line. We have, you know, a whole bunch of young players in the secondary, but how long is that going to stay true with the current situation that we're in? Yeah. And let's not fool ourselves. Like, um, me and Brandon are in our thirties, people our age and older than us, you know, we grew up with favorite teams and you're very loyal to those teams. Kids nowadays, um, they grow up with favorite players. And so they don't necessarily have an allegiance to a program. Like these kids who are coming to WVU, they're coming because they like the coaches. Um, And so I know some fans want to fool themselves and say, well, they should be coming to WVU no matter what and have that West Virginia pride. I mean, that would be great. I mean, look at the stills. They're a rarity. That's not common anymore. People are kind of out for their own brand and own interest, which, you know, I understand. And so, yeah, I mean, with all this uncertainty, it's not like they have an allegiance to this West Virginia program like the fans do. So um, you got to keep that in mind. Like they're kind of out for their own interest and uh, who can blame them? So the quicker a decision gets made, the better. And I know a lot of people wanted Neil gone and I was in that camp, but I'm kind of at the point where I would rather them just announce tomorrow that he's coming back. And, you know, if he has a disastrous first six games of the year next year, then make a decision then and, and try to hang on to the players you have in the class that you have right now. Because like I said earlier, you know, being in limbo is by far the worst case out of, all three options, whether having Neil announcing a new head coach or not knowing, I mean, this is by far the worst. Yeah. Uh, my only concern with bringing Neil back is, is there's a few questions that I have is, you know, number one is, and this is more of a blanket question is does bringing Neil back b- hold the program back as far as firing him and bringing someone else would in be um, just taking into the account, you know, is he going to be able to develop, talent at these other positions which he hasn't shown to do yet um and what is the bar for next year in terms of you know what he has to achieve in order to get his job back let's say he starts off you know two and two and finishes the season seven and five is that enough for him another year keep that group that he's recruited back and have another year and if it is is seven wins his ceiling you know what all these other sort of tangential questions is you know is it dangerous to bring back neil brown (laughs) well i'll give you a scarier scenario what if we wait long enough to announce that he officially is coming back and a bunch of players left imagine neil coming back without a ton of talent that he's supposed to have yeah so i mean that's what i mean we're kind of in this situation where i keep thinking of the worst case scenario and i kind of want to just pick any other option than you know the absolute worst 
And this is why it's such a mess. I mean, the timing of all this just couldn't be worse. Yeah. Another question I have is if we bring back Neil Brown and the new AD forces him to make wholesale changes to his staff, and if that is directed by the AD um, based on connections that he has or candidates that he thinks best fits the program, does that do, do you think that would affect you know potential future head coaches um i guess if they would like to have the job in the future knowing that this is what a new ad or a current administration is doing to a coach that they're not viewing as being successful i would say no but i guess i i'm not really in those meetings i would say it wouldn't just because i think people on the outside understand this is a unique situation. Like Neil Brown is not a, a fresh face head coach coming in and, and they're being a dictator about who's on his staff. He's like hanging on by a thread and they're trying to give him every limb to grab onto to not fire him. So you would think people would understand that. But then again, I'm not in those meeting with scumbag agents trying to get the most money for their, <laughs> for their clients. I don't know. That's a good point. Now, if Neil is fired, you know, I think we have basically all the same questions, but it also adds a new layer and that's the money layer uh, for the, the next head coach potentially is, do we have money to hire an in-demand coach or are we going to have to cheap out? And, you know, we know about Neil's buyout, but we also have to take into account Shane Lyons buyout. We have to take into account the assistant coaches buyouts who many of them got extensions over the off season. And then we also have to take into account some of the contracts that were just sold out recently, Matt rule just got an eight year, $72 million deal. That's 9 million a year. Luke fickle got 7.8 million per year at Wisconsin. Hugh freeze got 6.5 million per year at Auburn. Now you can argue that all those programs are bigger than WVU and probably have more money floating around. But if a coach is interviewing for the WVU job, assuming it's opened, are they going to say, I want 4 million like Neil Brown, or are they going to say, I want 6.5 like Hugh Freeze, and then you have to negotiate down from there? And how low, low can you get that? And does WVU have the money before that new pay jump with the new Big 12 media deal to pay that person's salary, as well as all the money that we owe to other people right now? Well, here's the thing. All three names you mentioned were the three hottest names on the market, and they're gone. So there's no one left who I think personally could demand that much money because you're not Matt Rule. Like you don't have a track record like him. Unless there's a guy I'm missing. There's no one out there with a track record who could just say, here's my offer, take it or leave it. So I feel like we don't have to worry Urban about. Meyer. <laughs> yeah. Urban Meyer. I mean, Hey, you want to come to Morgantown? Um, <laughs> so I'm not too worried about that. I mean, obviously, it is a good question. Do we have enough money to pay our old coaching staff and new coaching staff? But um, even if we are in that situation, I don't think we have to worry about these gigantic contracts being dished out just because, you know, those were the hottest names and now they're gone. So I feel like we're going to be working with like half or three fourths of those salaries if we do go with a new head coach. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I still feel like there's a lot of good names out there. I know Dion's name has been floated around for a lot of places. He's been offered by Colorado. Um, you also have guys like Jeremy Chadwell from Coastal Carolina, who has turned uh, Coastal Carolina into like a G5 powerhouse during his time there, which is kind of shocking. Um, and then there's all sorts of coordinators out there that, you know, you could talk yourselves into from like 
Ohio State's defensive coordinator. Um, I'm sure there's guys at Georgia, Alabama, everywhere else. So um, I definitely think there's enough big names out there, but you know, how quickly do we need to move on them um, in order to give them enough time to be willing to accept the job on the conditions that they have enough time to build the team and replace the players that are going to happen in that situation that we talked about where players are going to leave. And that's just kind of the natural um, evolution of things. Um, So before we jump to, you know, close out the section, I also had some additional questions for you about um, athletic director search. So do you feel that, you know, Lions interview may scare some people away from the job, knowing the things that he said in the interview don't necessarily paint a great picture about WVU leadership right now. That's a great point. And you might have something there because he did not make anyone really <laughs> look good, especially Gordon Gee. I mean, he essentially said Gordon Gee was sending him messages saying, Hey, you know, we're in this together. I wouldn't want to be in the foxhole with anyone else, but you, and then turns right around and fires him. Um, and, and it, Shane Lyons also made it sound like it was kind of like side blinding, like someone was feeding him info saying, Hey, your job's in trouble. But uh, it doesn't sound like anyone higher up was straight up telling him that they, they were saying, Hey, we're going to have a meeting in a week and, uh, and I'll see you there. Like they weren't hinting that he was going to be out the door. So I'm sure he has some bitter feelings about that. And I'm sure he also has, some bitter feelings in the fact that he feels like they're throwing him under the bus to kind of save their own rears, which, you know, like I said earlier, in a way I, I kind of agree with them there. <laughs> oh, for sure. And the one thing that sticks out to me too, is that last year um, Lions was given the athletic director of the year award in 2021, which is voted on by athletic directors across the country. So he is a very respected person and, when he says things, people listen. So um, I'm wondering if that's why some of those power five sitting ADs said no. Um, and given the things that we've heard from West Virginia leadership, you know, from Gordon Gee to the board of governors president to others related to West Virginia leadership. And these are guys that, you know, whose primary job isn't sports to be clear, but do you think that they should receive any heat or potentially um, even have their jobs evaluated based on the way that they handled this whole situation? It's a good question. I mean, I would say if I was, you know, of any position of power around WVU, I would just stay where we're at just because we just talked about how firing Shane this late at this time period is creating such a mess. Um, we don't need another big mess in like six months or eight months from now. So I would say for now, um, Hopefully everyone just kind of stays put, but uh, I, I mean, it definitely puts a black mark on their resume. If you ask me, I mean, if, if something snowball in these next couple of years, uh, this could be one event that people look back on and talk about saying, this is why he's being let go. Yeah. And the last question kind of related to it's related to the firing, but it's also related to the power struggle that seems to be going on related to the people with money, to the people in leadership. Um, and since this firing came out of the blue, it seems like it's not just guys like Gordon Gee or Rob Alsop and the Board of Governors who are pulling strings. It seems like there are big do- donors in place. So who's actually 
running things? You know, is it someone like Ken Kendrick and his billions of dollars? And is that going to influence not only our athletic director search, but also our head coaching search? And if it's someone like Ken Kendrick, his one of his guys is Rich Rod. So is that something that we would be willing to bring back? Uh, I think it's definitely a factor. Now I'm not sitting here saying um, Rich Rod's coming to Morgantown, but does that play a factor? Could it possibly lead to that? Sure. I mean, I don't want to be putting on a tinfoil hat here, but money influences everything, even our government. So it, it's not crazy to think that the people with a lot of money feeding it to WVU is having influence over decisions being made. Yeah, I think that's that's perfectly logical. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, it just wor- I just hope that there's enough checks and balances in place to stop donors from having too much influence, from just, you know, just putting their influence on everything and making all the decisions funneling through them as opposed to making it more of a, okay, he's, here's the guys I like, you guys run with it, and, you know, I'll accept what you guys vote on or whatever. Yeah, in a perfect world, they have a say. Their money gives them a say, but the people in those jobs make the decisions. In a perfect world, that's how it should work, and hopefully that is how it's working at WVU. But uh, like we said, yeah, I wouldn't put it past anyone with a lot of money. They definitely have a lot of power with that as well. Yeah. So to put a bow on all this, what are the ramifications? We've talked about a lot of it, but... Um, To summarize, college football is at an inflection point. As we noted, money is king. Conferences are restructuring at a record pace. NIL deals for recruits and blossoming stars are soaring. The transfer portal is lightly regulated, and tampering is being more evident every year. WVU needs to make a quality athletic director and head coach hire in the next week, or keep Neil Brown. Missing the deadline could set the program back a whole year. Missing on the head coach hire or lack thereof set the program back another three plus years. Keeping Neil Brown could keep set the program back multiple years as well. West Virginia football is at a precipice. Can we hit all the targets through all the noise and donor interference to remain relevant in the 2020s? The decisions made in the next week will determine if the product the WVU football team trots out through the remaining 2020s will be something WVU fans can be proud of and excited for. Or if Milan Pushkar Stadium may potentially remain half full like it was at the end of the season for the remaining decade as our program has to rebuild from the top, from the top down, basically. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been a WVU fan my whole life, but I became like a hardcore f- watch every game, follow everything in the late 90s. And uh, this is probably the scariest time I can ever remember in WVU athletics. I'm not saying this is all going to end in a disaster, but the potential of it being bad, I've never, I can't think of a time it was ever higher since I've been a fan. Yeah, the only time I can really correlate with this is whenever the Big East was just dying and we didn't know we were going to end up, are we going to stick with the Big East or we going to go to the Big 12? Um, Things are kind of flipped now where we have a safe home. We're going to be in the Big 12 for as long as we want to be. We're going to bring in a lot of money. But this is more about, you know, if WVU remained in the Big East, we'd still be fans. We'd still watch enjoyable football games. We wouldn't have the money. We wouldn't have the facilities or maybe the competitive football games that we have now. But 
On the flip side, right now, while we do have a cozy home, we don't have to worry about money or facilities or watching, you know, really highly ranked teams come into Mountaineer Field several times a year. Um, we don't know if our team's going to be competitive. And as a fan, that's the entire reason for watching. It doesn't matter about the bells and whistles. It doesn't matter the teams that are trotting through the tunnels coming out to face you. It matters if you can field a competitive football team. And that's what's kind of in the balance right now. Um, and I think that's why it's more scary for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think you nailed it on the head. Um, and just to switch gears a little bit, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this new topic, but uh, this was obviously a disappointing season for WVU fans. If you had to give Neil Brown a grade for the 2022 season, what would it be and why? <sighs> I mean, gut without thinking it through would be an F. But I think realistically, I would say a D minus, which is a slight improvement, right? Um, <laughs> and the reason that I give it a little bit higher is one, the offense improved. Um, I felt like we developed a lot of players in that running back room, um, whether that was Neil Brown's influence or not. It was his coaches on his staff who did it. And the recruiting, you know, is something that, you know, we haven't really seen necessarily translate into you know, good recruiting classes coming into really good players on our team yet from Neil Brown's recruiting classes, but um, we're bringing in guys that it seems like we should be excited for. And that means something, um, you know, I guess in terms of a bump from a F to a D minus, it means a half a letter grade, but uh, you know, uh, obviously I said it being the season seven wins was my floor and we didn't come anywhere close to that. I mean, two wins is a huge gap. Um, and we didn't even make a bowl. So um, in the end, all that matters is that big box that you have to check wins and losses. Yeah, you nailed it. And, and we're pretty close. I, I would give them a D for this season. Um, sure. This was the first time WVU beat Oklahoma and Oklahoma state in the same year, but Oklahoma finished six and six Oklahoma state finished seven and five, having lost five of their last seven games. So they really limped to that seven and five record at the end of the year. And that's when we beat them. So not exactly a huge accomplishment because those are just really, really down years for those programs. The only team WVU beat with a winning record was who I just mentioned, Oklahoma state Townsend. I didn't even look up their record, but they're an FCS school who wasn't very good. Virginia tech only won three games. Baylor was six and six. Oklahoma was six and six. So um, not a very good year. You didn't really knock anyone off who was a major name. Like, um, for example, when Dana only won four games, I'm pretty sure they knocked off Baylor that year, who was highly ranked. And uh, so you could look to that as a positive sign. Neil Brown just didn't have that this year. And only two Big 12 teams won't be going to a bowl game. Iowa State and WVU. So yeah, we're in a super competitive conference, but you know, we're not in the part of that conference you want to be in. It seems like everyone's thriving except us right now and Iowa state, of course. Um, but they're kind of having a down year. Um, you know, like you mentioned, there were things I saw this year that I liked the running game was great throughout the offensive numbers overall improved under Graham Harrell, even though they, you know, they still have some improving to do. I thought going from 21 points a game to 27 points a game this season was a big improvement. 
Um, although the defense was horrendous for most of the year, they made some improvements late in the season. So I guess you can say that's encouraging. Um, obviously, overall, their por- performance throughout the year was just straight up bad. Um, they, they went from allowing 25 points last season to 35 points this year um, per game. So, I mean, that's that's just horrible to have a 10-point jump like that. And um, I will say I started to see some signs of life against Oklahoma and Oklahoma State from the defense. But overall, being five and seven in year four is just unacceptable. There's really no way around that. This was a year a lot of people expected to see improvements. And honestly, just winning seven games would have been a big improvement. Um, And they couldn't get it done. Some people want to point to injuries, but all teams deal with injuries. Look at Texas Tech. They were constantly dealing with QB injuries throughout the season. You know, QB, the most important position for a football team. And their offensive line stunk the whole year also. I mean, if you add all that up, they should have been the 5-7 and team. But they found a way to have a winning record. And they didn't use injuries as an excuse. So, you know, 7-5 and or the bare minimum 6-6 and with a bowl appearance was expected. And, you know, anything less isn't going to get you a good grade, not in my opinion. So I'm going with a D. Because although I saw some encouraging things this season, the final results are just too disappointing to ignore. Yeah, well said. And just for context, you know, we talk about Oklahoma State and Oklahoma having down years and really, really down years actually for them. And Oklahoma State is seven and five. Oklahoma is six and six. I'm sure people are on Oklahoma message boards right now complaining about Brent Venables and where the program is right now. But they're six and six. And they made a bowl. Um, that was kind of the floor for where a lot of W fans wanted to be this year was just six and six. And we couldn't even accomplish that. Um, I know people are going to talk about bounces against Pitt or Kansas state or, you know, little nitpicky things here and there, but that's football. You know, you things bounces aren't going to go your way. Sometimes it's about, you know, how you manage the game throughout the course of the game and give your team the most opportunities to win. And it seems like Neil Brown's philosophy is to, keep every game on a razor thin margin and just hopefully you win by that one bounce and the bounces haven't went our way. And if the bounces aren't going your way, which they haven't, you, you got to make a change and not try to live on those margins. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and I get it. Some with sports, there is luck involved, but you know, you're not a well-coached team and have bad luck for four years. After a while, that does come down to coaching because decent coaches will find ways to have the ball bounce their way from time to time. And I feel like for four years, you you can't point to too many times the luck, if you want to call it that, went our way. Yeah, very well said. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just to uh, wrap this up, guys, we're going to talk about basketball for a minute. The West Virginia basketball team went out to the West Coast for the Phil Nike Challenge, and this was something – the fans and I'm sure the team was looking forward to because it was going to be their first real test this season. They came home going two and one in that tournament. And um, there's one thing that is certain this WVU basketball team's fun to watch, which, you know, we didn't get to say that too often last year. So I'm not taking it for granted. Um, so what were your thoughts on West Virginia's West coast trip? You know, uh, after the first game, the Purdue game, um, I was a little concerned because it seemed like going up against 
some real competition really kind of punched us in the mouth for lack of a better term. We struggled to stop them offensively. We struggled to get our offense going. And obviously Zach Eady is an outlier when it comes to players because of his size. Um, I didn't really realize how good Purdue was because after that game, Purdue beat Duke and um, I forget the other team they beat now, but they beat two really highly ranked teams. Gonzaga. Yeah. By I think 20 points or more, both teams and WVU, you know, hung in there. I know we lost by like about 15 or so, but I mean, we hung in there and that gives me a little bit of hope. Um, on top of that, you know, we handled Portland state without any issues. And then we also played Florida who, you know, might be off to a little bit of a slow start, but I think they'll pull it together towards the end of the season. Um, we handled them and blew the doors off them. Um, so, you know, while that first night made me question some things, I think by the end of the the tournament, it made me feel a lot better about the program and um, the players that we brought in. I'm with you. Yeah, if you ask me, they passed the test heading heading out to the West Coast. Um, you mentioned it. Sure, they lost to Purdue by 12, but they never quit. I mean, they kept battling during that game. They even, I think they even cut it to four points at one point. And so that's encouraging to see. They never just kind of gave up and accepted defeat. They they kept battling and battling, but Purdue's just a very good team. And uh, it would have been very easy for them to just pout about that loss. But instead, like you like you mentioned, they, they went on to put two amazing performances together against Portland State and Florida. Um, this team just looks legit to me. Mitchell looks like the real deal. He's a constant scorer around the basket. We see that game after game. And that's something WVU desperately needed last year. And it looks like Hugs took care of it in the portal, fixing that problem. Um, Stevenson, he seems like a classic Bob Huggins player. Very fiery, tough player, great hustler. But uh, the big thing is the dude can score. <laughs> you know, he's got all those classic Bob Huggins things. But on top of it, he can also put the ball in the bucket. Um and yeah, I just like this team. Muhammad Wagi just continues to improve. I, I feel like by the time Big 12 um, play comes, he he could be a real legit threat inside as well. He can score. He can rebound. Um, I can't wait to see him reach his full potential. And um, guards are always important for a Bob Huggins team. And, and these guys can play tough defense. They get involved in scoring when necessary, uh, which we didn't always see consistently last year. Um, yeah, so overall, I don't know how far this team will go in the tournament, but the more I see them play, the more I believe this is a team who will certainly be in the big dance, it seems like. And honestly, that's all I really hoped for coming into this season. I just wanted to see a team who could make the NCAA tournament because once you're in, I mean, we all know you never know what's going to happen. The NCAA proves that every year. If you just make it to the dance, you can go on a run and make, I don't know, the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight. So um, I'm kind of talking myself into getting hyped for basketball season. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, just talking about the personnel changes, you know, if we compare the players that we've lost to the players that we brought in, I mean, it feels like we're replacing Sean McNeil, who was kind of a one dimensional just shooter with Eric Stevenson, who can attack the basket a little bit. He can defend a lot better than what McNeil could. He's a lot more mobile. Um, and his shooting, you know, on nights where he's on, isn't that far off from what, what McNeil could do. Um, when we look at someone like uh, Jalen Bridges, I feel like 
what Trey Mitchell brings to the table is everything that we've all been screaming for Jalen Bridges to do his entire career. You know, if you're open at the perimeter, shoot the ball, you're bigger and more athletic and everyone get to the hoop and, you know, put it up. Um, and Trey Mitchell has that mindset and that ability right off the bat. Um, we replaced Isaiah Cottrell with, you know, Jimmy Bell and Waggy. And those are guys who can do things that we were asking Cottrell to do, whether fair or not, because of the type of player he is last year. Um, Jimmy Bell, you know, despite the huge size difference on Edie, whenever he was in the game, um, before he fouled out, he was actually battling with Edie in the paint in that Purdue game pretty well. Um, Waggy probably needs to put on a little bit more weight, but he's an extremely efficient scorer around the rim, which is, I don't think we had a single person last year who was an efficient scorer around the rim, to be honest. So, um, uh, you know, it feels like, you know, all the kind of, I think maybe, complaints that you know maybe someone like me may have had about players who are transferring out and the sky is falling bob huggins knew what he was doing he let those players walk for a reason and he upgraded surprisingly (laughs) yeah and and one guy i forgot to mention was um emmett matthews i mean just what a different player he is from when he was here before and you can probably chalk that up to you know he's just matured he he's filled out his body he's improved on his skills and um he's just a joy to watch. I mean, some of those dunks he has, that's stuff you see like in NBA games. And uh, I don't know. I'm just really impressed with how he's just not just improved in one area, but it seems like his entire game has gotten better since he was last at WVU. Yeah. His playmaking ability is kind of what stood out the most to me. I know he doesn't every night, but you know, he's someone who um, now can handle the ball a little bit is facilitating for other players i know um a few games ago he was actually the leading assister with like four or five assists which is a good bit for a college game um and that's something that you know whenever he was here before it seemed like he was more of an off-ball player you know standing at the wings kind of slashing um that whole thing and he's improved i mean that that's a great thing and he's come in and kind of served as someone else who can handle the ball um, which we need because last year we saw what happened when you only really have one or two ball handlers. You just get, you know, crowded, you get pressed, and then turnovers happen. And way too often last year where we just losing possession of the ball, giving up easy baskets. And this year now we have, you know, in most cases, three guys at least on the court who can handle the ball a little bit and do something with it. You know, it doesn't have to be attack the basket, doesn't have to be, you know, making some crazy pass, but just getting out of trouble and getting the ball to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I'm 100% with you. And um, I mean, that's really all I got to say. You got any shout outs or anything else you want to discuss? Uh, No, nothing right now. Um, Just stay tuned. Um, We will try to keep you you all updated on any news that breaks in the coming weeks. Um, As with, as like all of you, we hope that we get more news sooner rather than later. Um, I would rather this episode go out of date quickly than us be dwelling on it a month from now and reflecting back to how little has changed over that course of time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm with you, man. The only other thing I can think of is um, WVU football got a, I think a tackle down in Miami. Mm-hmm. It's like a six foot seven tackle. St. John was his last name. Um, commit. I mean, other than that, though, I feel like we covered everything. Definitely in the next week or two, there's going to be a lot of big news coming out. So uh, make sure you join us next time, guys. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.